me move into week three. Week three on this uh, is the second chapter of uh, this book, God is a Name by John Mark Comer. Uh, our small groups are studying it. This is really just a giant commentary on uh, a passage in the book of Exodus about God. And so we're working our way through that. If you've gotten to chapter two, it's going to bother you. Uh, if you haven't gotten to it, it's going to bother you. If, it has got, if you have gotten to it, it's, going, it's probably messed with your head a little bit. And so I'm going to mess with your head a little bit this morning. All I would ask you to do is keep in mind that, uh, that there is a mystery involved in the spiritual world, which, you know, we get used to stories like um, Mary, you know, the Holy Ghost conceiving a, a baby, uh, angels showing up. We get used to those stories. Uh, those are some wild stories. Um, I'm going to tell you some more wild stories this morning. So, uh, open minds this morning, okay? Everybody with me? All right. In 2005, uh, at his commencement speech to uh, Kenyon College, David Foster Wallace delivered what people have called the greatest commencement address of all time. I wasn't aware of it until this week. It's pretty good. Um, the speech would go on to be published under a title called This is Water, Some Thoughts Delivered on Occasion About Living a Compassionate Life. And his talk covered uh, subjects that include the difficulty of empathy, the importance of being well-adjusted, and the essential loneliness and lonesomeness uh, of adult life. Great speech, especially if you see the video adaptation you can find on the internet. Great to show your kids. Really good. But there's a concept in his talk that I think lends itself so well to our discussion this morning related to discovering who God is. So our series, I Am Who I Said I Am, as many of you know, right, we're focusing on material mass in this book. The book, by the way, we sold out of these books. Hopefully you're in a small group. It's not too late to get in one at the Engage Center today. And there's more books at the Engagement Center today. You can pick them up. The material that we're using is this book, God Has a Name. Now, Wallace's essay, his speech to this graduating class, begins like this. He says, there are these two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, excuse the language, the hell is water? Now, if at that moment, Wallace said, you're worried that I, I plan to present myself here as the old wise fish explaining what water is to you younger fish, please don't be. He said, I'm not the wise old fish. He said, the immediate point of the fish story is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. Stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is, in the day-to-day -day trenches of adult existence, these platitudes can have life or death importance. They may sound like hyperbole or abstract nonsense, but a huge percentage of the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. I love those two lines. The most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are hardest to see and talk about, and the stuff that I tend to be automatically certain of is, it turns out, totally wrong and deluded. And I have to tell you, the longer I have lived, the more I have found those things to be very true. Things that I was very sure of in my 20s, in my new decade, I'm less certain of. 
I've lived long enough to know, right? That when I misunderstand things, especially when it relates to who God is, when I'm really certain about how things work, right? Like, how can I be really certain about God? He's God. Even in the scriptures say there's mystery involved in this. Yes, there's revelation, but yes, there's also, it's mixed with mystery. And when I misunderstand God, it, it has huge ramifications for my life. Is it possible when it comes to God, and in fact our whole existence as we understand it, could it be, could it be when it relates to God that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are the hardest ones to see and talk about? Because I'm going to talk about some of those things this morning. They're hard to see, and they're harder to talk about. Now, if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks, you know that in order to discover who God is, we've been studying his progressive and incremental revelation of who he is from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where he simply says, I'm Elohim, or just God, right? That's not his name. He was just as his title. Uh, and, and we've moved into Exodus where he reveals his name and his character to Moses. And we've been tracking all the way through to God's complete revelation in Jesus Christ. Now let's go back. God tells Moses that he has a name. And it's not God. He says, my name is Yahweh. And it has meaning. It means what I am, I'll always be. What I am, I'll always be. That, that's my name. And so Moses, for lack of putting it a better way, says, that's great. Well, tell me who you are. And so Moses goes out and waits for God uh, up on Mount Sinai. Because he wants to discover. God says, go up and I will meet you and I will share who it is that I am and who I'll always be. In Exodus chapter 34, verses 5 through 7, I've been asking you to memorize this. There are cards, memorization cards, that are out at the engagement center. If you don't have one of these cards yet, please pick it up. Put it on your mirror in your bathroom or on your, on, on, on your dashboard in your car. I've been asking you to study this and memorize it because it's so important. The most important thing in your life is what you think about God because you move towards that. So with that said, let's recite this again together. This is the most quoted verse in the Bible by the rest of the Bible. All about God's name and character. So read it with me, Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, compassionate and gracious. Did I mess it up? Abounding in love and faithfulness. This is the danger of reading it together. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Again, I say it every week, last line troubling. We'll pick it up later in the series, so keep coming back. Now, we're unpacking this verse. We're going through this revelation. Here's the opening line of the revelation. God says, Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember when I taught you, anytime you see the Lord in all capitals, 
That's, that is Yahweh. That's when the, the Hebrew writers were afraid to misuse the name of God, so they didn't want to put the name because they wanted to you know, just make sure they didn't get themselves in trouble. So they started replacing Yahweh with the Lord. And we talked about what that meant relationally for us. Suddenly it's like me just calling my wife the wife from now on, right? And so, so Yahweh shows up and he says his name, the opening line, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. He says his name twice. Not just Yahweh. He goes, Yahweh, Yahweh. Why? Well, in the ancient world, and you see this in other places in the Bible, if something was really important and you wanted to drive a, a point home so people would say, oh, he's making a point about this, you would say it over and over again. You would repeat it. And so when Yahweh shows up and he says, my name is Yahweh, my name is Yahweh, he wants us to know it and that it's important for a reason. Well, Comer postulates in this troubling chapter 2, which I guarantee will make your small group discussions pretty interesting this week, the reason that God has a name and it's not just God, the reason that the biblical writers, when they reference God, they don't just call him God, but they called him Yahweh God, was that, and get, get ready to get your educated, sophisticated, Western mindset panties all up in a wad about this. The reason was, don't shoot the messenger, the reason was that Yahweh was and is one of many gods. Now, since most of us at this point have finished middle school, we all have some frame of reference as it relates to ancient cultures and, and their unsophisticated understandings of God. Most, if not all, cultures, both ancient and current, and current, have many gods. In grammar school, you studied Greek and Roman gods, right? You had Zeus and Apollo and Venus and Mars and Cupid and Aphrodite. They each had responsibility or lordship over something, the earth, the wind, the rain, love. Now, in the ancient world, you name an issue or a place, and there was a god for that issue or place or town or city. Now, today, things are not all that different. In India, for example, there are still plenty of gods being worshipped. Brahma is the creator God. Vishnu is the preserver God. Heck, even in our Christian sects, we have our own little demigods, right? We, we just call them by different... We don't like calling them gods, so we call them by different names, different names. Sometimes we'll call them saints, right? We have an issue. You pull out the book. You find the saint because that saint has power or influence over that issue, well, what was and still is so different about Yahweh God is that he shows up, and no other gods had done this, he shows up and he claims that he doesn't share his office with anybody. The most holy prayer in all of Israel, the one that every good Jew should pray, should be their final, you know, their final breath should be spent praying this prayer, was something called the Shema. It's in Deuteronomy. Here's what the Shema teaches. This is the basis of Christianity and Judaism uh, and Islam. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength. And so Yahweh claims that there is not a God of this or a God of that. There's not a love God and a, and a sex God and a moon God. He says there, there is not a creator God or a sustainer God. He says there is but one eternal God, and he is it. Now that 
was and still is in the world a revolutionary claim. What God tells his people over and over in the Bible is that there is only one Elohim, there is, which was the, the Jewish word for God. There is only one creator God. There is only one El Shaddai, the almighty God. There is only one El Elyon, the most high God. But both God and the writers of Scripture seem to indicate quite uncomfortably that there are lots of lesser gods. Little g gods, created gods, invisible but real spiritual beings out there competing for preeminence in the spiritual realm. And so now this is where this gets maybe a little less seeker sensitive in terms of morning talks, because this is weird, okay? I get it, weird. I didn't write it. I'm teaching you what the scripture teaches about this. And it's really quite fascinating. I totally understand if you hear this and you go, dude, you're blowing my mind. I'm not buying into this. I get that. There was a time in my life where it would have been hard for me to get here too. The stuff we're talking today about today, it is outside of our Western mindsets. We have all grown up with this Western world, Western mindset thought that all that there is is all that we see. And if there is a God, there is only one God, not many gods, because we've all been brought up in a Judeo-Christian mindset, in a Judeo-Christian system. But this view, as I've said it, is both historically and biblically not shared. Now stick with me, okay, before you start throwing things at me. If, as we look at Yahweh, if we look at what he says regarding these other spiritual beings, you, you may want to take these teachings as simply allegorical. You might say, you know what, uh, I'm not really sure that that's actually true, but there's some truth in it. I, I would say if you just want to look at this and say this is an allegorical teaching and not factual I understand why you might claim that. It's, it's, a, it's a strange teaching. And I would tell you that, that there is um, some truth you can take away if you just want to believe it's allegorical, right? Um, but I don't think it's purely allegorical. Because as, as Foster said, sometimes the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. So these other gods, little g-gods, These other Elohims, not Yahweh God, whoever they are, Yahweh says they're not even in the same category. Yahweh wants his people to know that, but that doesn't mean that these gods are shams. In the second book of the Bible, Exodus, where we're spending most of our time, we read about Yahweh saving Israel out of slavery in Egypt, right? Most of you are familiar with that story. There's a line in Exodus 12 where Yahweh says, I will bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. See, we think he's fighting Pharaoh, right? We watch the Ten Commandment movies and he's mad at Pharaoh. But Yahweh says, no, this is about bringing, this is about bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. Many of you know the story of the ten plagues. But what you might not know is that many of the plagues are directed at specific Egyptian deities. Comer points out, Amun-Ra was the sun god in the Egyptian pantheon. He was also king over all the other Egyptian deities of choice. So what does Yahweh do? He blots out the sun for three days, pitch black. 
It's his way of saying, Amun-Ra isn't the king over the gods, I am. So Yahweh's relationship with these other pretender gods is hostile. It's not an exaggeration to say he's at war with these other gods. In fact, this warfare language is used all over the Hebrew scriptures, all the way into the New Testament. Now, of course, many of you are familiar with the final plague, right? That sets the Israelites free, the night of Passover. And here is how Yahweh describes what's going to go down. Yahweh says, on that same night, I'll pass through Egypt and I'll strike down every firstborn of those people and animals and I'll bring judgment on all of the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Now, scripturally, what you start to see is that this Yahweh God, he claims to be the most high God. And that he's at war with all of these lesser gods. All of, see, you have friends that maybe go, oh, so much violence in the Old Testament. All of the violence that you hear talked about as it relates to the horribly violent stories, those stories are all set against this backdrop of a war being fought in the spiritual realm also between Yahweh and lesser gods. Now stick with me. We're going to fast forward just a couple chapters. Exodus 15, right after Yahweh defeats the God of Egypt, you pick the story up and Moses is singing to God about what's happened. Here's his song. Exodus chapter 15, Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He's become my salvation. He's my God. I'll praise him. My Father's God. I'll exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. Notice the war language. The Lord is his name. Now, when it says the Lord is his name, they're replacing Yahweh there, right? Because they don't want to use his name. They don't want to offend God, right? So Yahweh is his name. And then check this out. Who among the gods is like you, Yahweh? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? See, Moses got it. There's other things going on in the spiritual realm, but this Yahweh God that seems interested in me He's in a class all by himself. This is not a limited claim in the Bible. I'm not just proof texting this stuff. Check out the psalmist who discovers over and over the same thing. There is none like you among the gods, Psalm 86. Great is Yahweh and greatly to be praised. He is to be revered above all the gods. Worship him. That was Psalm 96. Worship him, all you gods, you lower, you lower G gods. For you, Yahweh, are the most high over all the earth. You're exalted far above all other gods. And we looked at this last week, and I hope you'll see the new context of it. Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet Yahweh. And Yahweh gives him what we know as the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, right, our moms told us this is essentially, this is how you should act. It's a list of do's and don'ts. But that's not really what it was. As I described them to you last week, this is more of what a Jewish husband would present to his bride. It was called a ketubah. It wasn't, the, it wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. It was the rules, the promises that would guide this new intimate relationship, God and his people going forward. Some of these rules are very familiar. I just married, Heather, you were there. I just married a couple Friday night for a menum. What does Yahweh say to these people he wants to know intimately? We fight to get these Ten Commandments back in school or put in front of the courthouse because we think it's about good moral behavior. But understand what Yahweh is saying to his people. He's going, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods but me. 
Now, most people just skip over this, right, because they think there are no other gods, that they're all made up. It's a figment of Israel's imagination. That could be true, but if you pay close attention, it doesn't say that. In fact, it seems to assume there are other gods. Now, stick with me here, because now it involves you. Because if there are other gods, they're vying for your attention, for a relationship with you. And God is saying, no, 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 this is a closed marriage. Right? Friday night, I, I sat with this couple, and I said to them, forsaking all others. Yahweh goes, forsaking all others. And then there's this second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a, a, an idol. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For, for I, Yahweh, I'm your God, and I'm a jealous God. Why is God jealous over you? Well, what if there's an eternal spiritual battle raging? This is crazy right now. But there is an eternal battle raging in the heavenly realms. And do you know what they're fighting over? You. So, there's a command about these gods, and, and there's a command about idols, and, and Israel's to stay away from both of them. Now, most people, we just collapse those first two commandments into one uh, because we, we just say, oh, it's God and idols, stay away from them. We do this in the Western world all the time, and what it winds up doing, since we understand that idols aren't real, we then assume that these other gods aren't real. That they must have no power, because idols have no power, so these gods must have no power. But Scripture seems to say something different. Some of you know the story of Moses, right, when he's trying to get his people out of Israel. He goes into Pharaoh's throne room. Okay, again, this is in the Bible. I'm not making it up, so I know this is, you know, I know. It's weird stuff. Stick with me. Moses goes off, goes into Pharaoh's throne room, and he's going to show that he's really from Yahweh God, the Most High God. So Moses does miracles. First he turns his staff into a snake. But does anybody know what happens? Pharaoh's magicians do the exact same thing. And then Moses turns the Nile River into blood. And Pharaoh's magicians do the exact same thing. Then Moses makes frogs come out of the Nile and cover the whole of Egypt. But Pharaoh's magicians go and call on the dark arts, and they copy this miracle. So Comer asks the question, have you ever read this story and thought, how are they doing this? How, how are they doing this? I mean, is it like magic, sleight of hand? Or are they linked up to different gods? tuned into the power of these malevolent beings. Now, if these other lesser gods have power, and if their desire is, is you, what does that mean for you? And how does it begin to help us describe the world that we find ourselves living in? That oftentimes doesn't make sense. How does it help you maybe see your own individual world in a different light? Because I, I need you to understand, he's jealous over you because somebody else is wooing you. 
there is another force at work in your life other than God. He's jealous for you. And he's saying, listen, don't get involved with them. Now, if you know the story of Israel, which is most like our individual stories with God, their hearts, our hearts, they're always prone to wander, right? I mean, we, you know, we get married and uh, our eyes catch, uh, catch another woman. We get a good job, we're off looking for another job. In our relationship with God, right, we're always prone to wander. The Bible shows what happens when our heart wanders, and I love it because it's a story of how desperate we are for human relationships. How many people, right, like, oh, I love God so much, I have so much, so much, I wish he'd bring me a man into my life or a woman in my life. Oh, oh, here's this woman. Uh, she doesn't really care about God, and I love God, but I think I would rather get married. And so we do this all the time, right? We, we're always picking other things to put above God. And, and there's this example in the book of 1 Kings where we read about um, King Solomon. Everything is going incredibly well in the kingdom. At the beginning of the chapter, here's what it says. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. The Moabites, the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Sidonians, the Hittites. They were from nations about which Yahweh had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry, you must not intermarry with them. Now here's why. Because they will turn your hearts after their gods. And so Solomon grew old, his wives turned, this is what the scripture says, as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, as his heart was not fully devoted to Yahweh, his God. And watch what happens. The scripture says, he followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. And so this writer, he lists off a number of these ancient gods, but nowhere does the text say these are false gods. Why was God wor worried about Solomon? Because he wasn't worried because they were fake gods. Instead, the, the, the text calls these gods by their names. See, they have names too. Ashtoreth is the goddess of Sidon, which would be like Lebanon on a current map. Molech is the god of Amnon, which is, in, is Jordan today. There are gods in the story with power and authority. And they seem to have it. Stick with me. Not my stuff. They, they seem to have it uh, over geographic regions and ethnic groups, what we would call nations. By the way, that doesn't mean that's only those nations. It means there's power going on all around the globe in all cultures. This is a strange story. This story always bothered me. It's in Daniel. Daniel's prayers are going unanswered for about three weeks. Daniel's a book in the Old Testament. And so Daniel, he's praying, he's praying, he's praying. There's nothing happening. Finally, an angel comes to him from Yahweh and says he's late because, quote, the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. The prince here is some kind of spiritual being at the back of the Persian empire. And that is this angel's leaving. Do you know what he says? He says there's a prince of Greece he has to know. Get, now go fight. This is weird stuff. I read chapter 2 on the beach this summer. I said, these people are going to look at me and go, he's nuts. But the scripture seems to, to really be quite certain that there's a lot more going on than you see. I'm not going to ask you to, to raise your hand because you don't want to look weird to your neighbor. I get that. 
But have you ever felt, have you ever had like the curtain come up for just a minute on the spiritual world and gone, there's something going on here? Have you ever sensed it, maybe gone to a different city or a different town or a different house and something just doesn't feel right? Where you go, there's something going on here. I'm going to share with you one story, right? You're not going to judge me, right? Um, Joan and I were in our old house in Flanders one day, and we, we only had one kid. I've only got two of these stories. One of them's a little weirder, so I won't share with you, but I actually know a lot of these stories, because when you deal with the spiritual realm stuff, this stuff becomes a little more common. And so we're sitting in the house one day, and we hear this ridiculously loud sound from upstairs. I mean, it was like somebody took, you know, a hundred-pound anvil and dropped it on the second story. And we both looked at each other like, what the heck was that? And so we, we go upstairs. We live in a little small Cape Cod house. There was just two bedrooms at the top of stairs. You went up, there was one bedroom here, one bedroom there. And so we're looking through these rooms. We can't find anything. And it would have been big because it made such a noise, like the, the floor shook. And so we're looking, we're looking, we come out. And, you know, she'll be here. You can ask her in the, in the hallway. We come out, and I looked at her. I said, I can't find in any, anything in there. And she goes, well, I can't find anything in here. We said, I wonder what it was. And audibly a voice said, it was me. To which Joan goes, call the police. <laughs> and I said, and tell them what? <laughs> like, I, you know, I'll be on the fifth floor of Morristown Memorial. Or, you know, if I... And so... This is where we are. There, there is this Yahweh God that is trying to reveal Himself to you. And He's telling you, I am the one true Creator God. I made everything. He has no equal. There are none parallel to Him. But there are a multiplicity of these other wannabe gods, invisible but real spiritual created beings, gods with a lowercase g, and they're vying for you with malevolent desire. Now, if the terms gods is messing you up, in the Bible, these lowercase g gods, they go by different names. You'll see it all over. Angels or demons or princes or lords, powers, principalities, rulers, authorities. But what's clear, and I hope what you're getting a sense of and understand this morning, is Yahweh doesn't care what you call them. He cares that you understand that they're not made up, that there's something going on in the heavenly realm. There is a cosmic war afoot. The Bible teaches that you were born into it. It was raging before Genesis 1, before the garden story took place. Now I would tell you, if you want a more thorough discussion of this, you should read chapter 2. It'll, it'll go into a little bit, how did this happen? Where did these come from? Um, but here's what I want you to know. Jesus shows up and he says, I'm Yahweh in the flesh. Jesus ends the battle. The New Testament writers, as they look back on Jesus' life and death and resurrection, they make it clear that one of Jesus' primary agendas was to, quote, disarm the powers at war with Yahweh. You see it in his life as he confronts over and over and casts out the demonic, but you see it in completion at his death. John said, the, the reason the Son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Paul described it this way in Colossians. He said, quote, this is talking about Jesus. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by, by the cross. He put them to shame, the scripture does. He, he did a victory dance in the end zone. This is the most basic, most ancient reading of what the meaning of the cross was. Yes, it symbolizes love and sacrifice, but through the ages, it has represented so much more. It has represented victory. Yahweh has been at war with the spiritual powers for you for millennia at the cross. It's the decisive blow in his campaign against evil. It is the breakthrough victory on the cross. Jesus defeats Satan. He defeats a pantheon of wild and dangerous beings. And he defeats death itself. Okay, so why do I tell you all this? Why is it important? I mean, maybe you showed up this today and you're like, well, I'm going to come to church because I want to be a better person or I need help getting through the week or I need to be more productive at work. Is this going to help you? Probably not. But I think when your eyes are open to this possibility that all that you see is not all that there is, it can lead to a couple profound conclusions for you. In our world, it seems the number one issue people have with God, and it's the great eternal question, right? If there is a God and he is good, then why is there so much evil in the world? Interestingly enough, the biblical writers never deal with that question. Never once comes up. You know why? Because they understood evil in a way that you and I don't. They didn't debate its nature. They didn't theorize about its origins or have a crisis of faith when a tsunami or a hurricane hit. Why? Stick with me now. Because evil was assumed. Jesus' prayer that we repeat often, right, explains this. Jesus prayed, Father, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, Jesus understood that on earth there were other wills at play. Yours, mine, theirs. Homer put it this way. He's saying, we need to get back to the worldview of Jesus and his Hebrew writer friends. Because when our worldview became shaped by secularism and not scripture, we created a philosophical problem with no good solution. So when evil comes to smash in your door, don't have a crisis of faith as if Yahweh was to blame. The odds are he's not. Instead, grieve and lament and meet God in the place of pain, but then get up and join Jesus in his quest to turn evil around for good. Second, some in the Christian world have taken this far too far and they see Satan behind every doorpost, but Western mindset people. When you watch the news tonight, when you see the strain in your homes, in your marriage, when you see your kids being lured to people and to things you know are ultimately harmful, when you feel totally caught up in a culture and a world that seems at war with each other, country against country, race against race, values against values, sometimes none of which makes sense. We're all working crazy hours to get more stuff. You ever just, I mean, you want to talk about the God of our area? We all work these crazy hours to get stuff that we will all say, oh, it's not about the stuff. I know it won't satisfy, but we can't stop. We can't stop. Here is a reminder and a call towards Yahweh and away from other gods. Paul says this. Finally, he says, listen, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but it's against the rulers and the authorities and the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Is it possible? Is it possible that when you're fighting with your, your wife, when you're fighting with your husband, when you're fighting with your kid, when you're fighting with your boss this week, is it possible that that's not all you're fighting? Is it possible that what's going on in your home and your office and your soul is not all that you see? And lastly, there's this. What do you worship? Have these other lesser gods, have they captured your heart? Have you left Yahweh, your first true love, in pursuit of another? Because, see, you as a human being, you were created to worship, and you do. The question is not do you, but what do you worship? What do you give your life away to? Have you been duped? Have your eyes been unopened? I mean, what do you make sacrifices for? In the ancient world, they sacrificed animals, but they were essentially currency that they were giving away over time to different gods. In some fashion, what are you making sacrifices to? Who? What is your God? John, who walked with Jesus, he called himself the disciple that Jesus loved. He wrote the book of John. He wrote Revelation. In 1 John, what scholars believe to be his last work, they think he was in his 90s when he wrote it. He's an old man. He knew a lot. He had written a lot. Do you know what his last words were? Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Don't give your life away to lesser gods because they're vying for you. I'm going to close with this. The band can come up. Back to David Foster Wallace's speech. This is great. This is what he wrote. Remember, he had said the obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are the ones that are hardest to see and talk about. The stuff I tend to automatically be certain of, it turns out totally wrong and deluded. He would go on to say this. You get to consciously decide, this is speaking to a secular crowd, you get to consciously decide what has meaning and what doesn't. You get to decide what to worship. Because here's something else that's true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. Here's how he finished. He said, if you worship money and things... If if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. It's the truth. He told these 22-year-olds, worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid, and you'll need even more power over the others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling stupid and a fraud and always on the verge of being found out. Look, he said, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's that they're unconscious. They're default settings. They're the kind of worship you gradually slip into day after day without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. 
and the world will not discourage you from operating on your default setting because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. What God do you need Yahweh to destroy in your life? With whom and towards what idol have you allowed your heart to stray? Because you could begin today. You can go out to the sign in the hallway that we just hung up under the TV. You could reflect on it. It all changes with your eyes now open. And you begin to love the Lord your God, Yahweh, with all of your what? Heart. How much of your heart? And all of your soul. How much of your soul? And with all of your mind, how much of your mind? And with all of your strength, how much of your strength? There's a war afoot. You're the prize. Yahweh's the victor. Don't settle for lesser gods. Amen.